scholarly men in the field of theology and other biblical studies. Among them, it's not limited to these, but among them have been John Walvoord and people like Pentecost, Robert Leitner. There have been others, to be sure. But I bring these three up because I remember very well all three of these men speaking on the issue of finishing well in the spiritual life. I heard Drs. Walvoord and Pentecost give very passionate chapel messages. In fact, the last chapel messages I heard them give were both on finishing well. Of course, Dr. Walvoord is now with the Lord. Dr. Pentecost is in his mid-90s, I believe, I think late 90s, actually. So I've had several conversations with Dr. Leitner on a personal basis about finishing well. I asked him one time, when was he going to know when it was time to retire? It's always a very difficult thing in ministry to know when it's time to step down. Now, he is semi-retired from the seminary, but he told me, and I'll never forget this. He said, Bruce, I want to retire before I embarrass myself or the seminary, or my Lord. He said, I just hope that I have people that are close enough to me that love me enough that will tell me when that time has come. But all three of these men, these very godly men, if I could say that, were very concerned with finishing well, as was the Apostle Paul in his life. All three recognized that no one gets so far down the road in the spiritual life that they are immune to failure and discipline. No one. No one becomes so spiritually mature that they can coast in the spiritual life. Sometimes in athletics, a team might get such a large lead that they put it on cruise control. Those of you who follow particularly team sports know that that can happen. They get so far ahead that they think there's no way that the other team can possibly ever catch up. On January 3rd, 1993, I believe it was, the Houston Oilers had a 35-3 lead in a playoff game against the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo early in the third quarter. A lot of Houstonians actually left at that point and did something else because they were certain that Houston would win that game. But in one of the biggest playoff comebacks in NFL history, <laughs> the Buffalo Bills won that game. 41 to 38, and it still stings for most Houston sports fans. You're not supposed to lose when you have that kind of lead. But it happens. It's possible, and it happens. I wonder if King David, when he approached the end of his life, felt like he had a lead that he couldn't lose, that he was so far out ahead in the spiritual life that there's no way he could possibly lose. It's hard to say. The biblical text is silent on that account, and we need to respect the silence of Scripture. But we can say at least, at least up until the point of chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, David had lived an extraordinary life. I think we would all agree on that. Yes, he had his ups and downs. He had his spiritual victories and his spiritual defeats, but his spiritual victories far outweighed his spiritual defeats. There's no question that David is one of the greats of the Old Testament if David was here tonight, he would probably be very upset with me for calling him a great. But that's one of the things about great people spiritually. They have a level of humility that is far above the average person. And so even the greats wouldn't want to be recognized as greats, but I'll say it. I think David was certainly one of the greats of the Old Testament. He was special. He was the king against which all kings in Israel from that time forward were judged. 
He was the greatest king in the history of Israel, and he will remain the greatest king in the history of Israel until the next king of the Jews. The very next king of the Jews will be Jesus Christ himself, and then the whole standard will change. But all kings in Israel, both in Judah and in the northern kingdom, were evaluated based upon David. He was a very special person. Yet for all that, 2 Samuel ends with a story of failure. No one gets so far down the road in the spiritual life that they're immune to failure and discipline. And that includes even someone like King David. I want to say right up front before we get into this chapter itself that David will recover from this failure. He's not going to stay in failure. He'll recover very quickly. But this is no small thing, this last failure. And I should add, before we get into the consequences of his sin, just like in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well, it's always been this way, David's eternal destiny was never at stake. He wasn't ever in danger of losing his eternal life. But he did get into spiritual failure. Spiritual failure is something that should be avoided. And if it can be avoided, and it can, then let's avoid it. That's the primary message that you get here tonight. That might seem so simple, but sometimes the most simple things are the hardest to grasp. If we can avoid the failure, let's avoid it. And we need to remember that none of us are immune to failure. None of us can put it on cruise control in the Christian life. You see, the Houston Oilers knew that they were in the third quarter of that football game. They knew where in the game they were. Most of us, unless you have some sort of terminal disease where you've given us a certain period of weeks or days to live, most of us don't know exactly where we are with regard to the clock of our lives. And you know what? Age is irrelevant. Some people in their 20s and 30s may very well be in the fourth quarter of their life and not even know it. That happens every day in Houston and around the country. The point is that we all need to keep our focus every day, not to wait till we think it's the end, but to keep our focus every day squarely upon Jesus Christ, to keep short accounts with God when we fail, and we will, but to keep short accounts with God, confessing and repenting consistently, and continue to grow until the game is over. We should never coast. We should never say, I know enough, I've grown enough. Coasting is not an option for the believer who wants to finish well. You don't finish well by coasting. You finish well by running through the finish line. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, David's sin is the subject of the first nine verses. David's confession of that sin is the subject of verses 10 through 17. And David's altar, the building of an altar, a very special altar that will be on the place, the very place that Solomon will eventually build the temple. That's the subject of verses 18 through 25. Like several chapters before, some believe that this chapter is out of sequence. But since there's no real solid evidence for that, it's just speculation, we're going to proceed on the assumption that this chapter is indeed in the proper order and does happen late in David's life. In chapter 24, the first nine verses read this way. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it, or probably more likely he, incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, 
and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the armies, the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and camped on Aror, on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad, toward Jazer. And then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahim Hoshti, and they came to Donjon and around to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. And when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. David's sin here is not as clear-cut as his sin with Bathsheba, the adultery with Bathsheba, and the murder of Uriah the Hittite back in chapter 11 of this same book. Adultery is always a sin. Murder is always a sin. But taking a census of the people is not always a sin. In fact, at least two times in Israel's history, God told the leaders of Israel to take a census. So why was this such a great sin? And there's another question that we have in the first nine verses. Who exactly tempts David to sin? I want to tackle the second of those first. Who tempted David to sin? Again, I want you to see in, in the first verse, this passage reads, Now the anger of the Lord burned, watch this, against Israel. Some sin that is not specified here, presumably an unspecified national sin, has caused the Lord to become angry with Israel. What the connection is between the anger of God with Israel and David being tempted to sin here is frankly unclear. I want to stop for just a moment and make an editorial comment. Listen up. I love study Bibles. I've got several myself. Somebody one time came to me after a lesson and they said, obviously you haven't consulted the Schofield study Bible with this lesson. Now, they don't go to church here anymore. <laughs> Not because of that. But I said, no, I don't. I, I don't Study Bibles are typically not the sources that, if you're going to do appropriate work, that you should be consulting as primary reference. I will look at the Study Bible sometimes to see what you're looking at while I'm going over these, these passages. And I've got to tell you, I love Study Bibles, but the first thing you've got to know is the notes in the Study Bible are not divinely inspired. Secondly, you have, you have no idea who wrote them most of the time. Now, I do know, like in the Ryrie Study Bible, most of those were written by Dallas Seminary professors. In the Net Bible, our own Will Johnson wrote some of the study notes for that. They're not study notes so much as they are notes on the, the text itself. But aside from that, you really don't know who wrote it. Well, the New King James Study Bible, Ron Allen was the Old Testament editor for that. Wayne House, who many of you know, he's been here at the church. He was the New Testament editor. But in terms of a particular note in any particular Bible, there's no authority. And when you come to a passage like this, either study Bibles will ignore it altogether, this particular verse, 
Or sometimes they will make pronouncements that are more dogmatic than they ought to be. Now, I like dogmatism in biblical study just like the next person does. But dogmatism when it's warranted. Sometimes dogmatism is not warranted. And when I tell you that verse 1 of chapter 24 is an enormously difficult verse exegetically, I have to tell you at the same time, we, we need to be cautious about being dogmatic when the text withholds certain information from us that would help us to be dogmatic. So I just make that editorial comment about study Bibles. Keep them, use them, but be cautious with the notes. That's just one person's opinion who hasn't signed it telling you what they think is going on in the text. It's not as easy as some of the study Bibles that I took a look at today when I was reviewing what you might be looking at as I was studying this passage. But another interesting factor, besides the issue that some national sin unspecified, the text doesn't tell us. I wish it did, but the text is not here to satisfy our curiosity about every detail. There's a bigger message here. But after some unspecified national sin on the part of the Jews, then the text says, the Lord burned against Israel, and the New American Standard says, it incited David against them. The word it is a cop-out. The word should be he. I know why the New American Standard editors put it in there, because they didn't want to look like, they didn't want to make it look like God was inciting David to sin, because what David does here is a sin. Taking the census turns out to be sinful, so, and they knew that, so they figured they, they couldn't do it. Now, I'm speaking for them, but I'm, I'm, that's the only reason they could possibly do it. If you look through any other Bible, New, New King James, I'm sure has he, NIV has he. Most every other Bible was honest about it, just put he in there. But I love New American Standard. That's the one I preach from. It's the one I do my own study from in terms of my devotional reading. But he is probably an attempt to avoid what may be an uncomfortable situation. It is an uncomfortable situation for many Old Testament scholars because when the parallel passage comes up in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the text reads this way. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. That's a pretty serious problem. Since we don't believe there are any contradictions in the text, now there are some Old Testament scholars that believe there's a textual issue there, but they don't have real good evidence for it. So what are we to do with this? Just who is tempting David here? Is it God, as per 2 Samuel chapter 24, or maybe a, that appears that way in 2 Samuel chapter 24, or is it Satan, as per 1 Chronicles chapter 21? When faced with a difficult passage like that, you come across an exegetical choice like this, sound method moves us to look at clearer passages to help us understand the more challenging passage. So when you come up in your own Bible study against a passage, and boy, it's a real challenge. If there's a clear passage, I mean crystal clear passage, that would enlighten you about it, then go to the clear passage and understand the more difficult passage in light of the very clear passage. This is one of the very first things they teach you in hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. It's, it's very basic. You always understand the difficult passages in light of the more clear passages, not the other way around. When you see people doing it the other way around, you see people with very, very bad technique. I mean, this, those are the people that are all over the map, that have a clear passage, and they take it and interpret it in view of their own interpretation of the difficult one. That's kind of where we are here today. So we have, 
Do we have any clear passages in Scripture that speak about the potential of God tempting someone to do evil, or God tempting someone to, to, to sin? Well, actually, we do, and we've studied it not all that long ago. In James chapter 1, verse 13, this passage clearly indicates, there's no ambiguity there at all, it clearly indicates that God never tempts anyone to sin. He tests our faith, but he does not tempt us to sin. James said this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. If we were to make an effort to understand 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, in view of 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, those are difficult passages, but if we, if we know for sure from James, and that's a very clear passage, that God's not the one tempting to sin, and we try to synthesize these, as many have, the most reasonable answer that Old Testament scholarship comes up with is that God allowed Satan to test David, much like what happened to Job. Same type of situation. God gave his okay. Go ahead and test his faith. Go ahead and tempt him, if you will. But God is not the direct tempter of David's sin here. We know that God didn't approve of what David did, as per verse 10, that we'll read in just a moment. If David is simply following the command of God, then it wouldn't have been a sin. People speculate about what the sin was. That's the first of the two questions. The sin was probably a failure on David's part to trust God, to take care of the security of Israel. That's the most popular option. It's very difficult to say. It would have been nice to have more information on just exactly what's happened here, that God the Holy Spirit would have seen fit to fill in the blanks for us. But even as I say that, I almost shudder. Because when I, when I say it would, have nice, it would have been nice if God, let's leave out the Holy Spirit right now, because they're all members, if, if God would have given us a little bit more information. So I, I'm in no way disparaging what he decided to do in this text. But I bring this up to tell you that, at least in my experience, when we come upon passages like this, where some of the details that we'd like to have are left out, the details must not be germane to the central message of the passage. If there are certain details that we don't have, and we would have to speculate or fill in the blanks, and some theologians are real good about filling in the blanks, be careful of that. But if there are certain details that are left out, then we have to respect the silence of Scripture. And we have to look further to see, is there a more important message in this passage? Is there something more important in this passage than us understanding specifically the, the specific nature of David's sin here? We know he sinned. That's a for sure. We know he sinned. We know that God can't tempt him to sin. We know that in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, the text says Satan is the one that actually tempted him. If we're going to put it all together, then we can perhaps assume, and again, I say perhaps assume, that Satan tempted David to sin with God's permission. And the sin that he is tempted to do is to take a census of the people, which would have been a failure on David's part to trust God to protect Israel. In other words, he had to know exactly how many people he had. Other times in history, that's not a sin. But right now, it obviously was. There's something more fundamental going on here, though, 
besides just simply our understanding of some blanks that God gives us that he chose not to fill in. Putting it together, what we do have, and that's helpful sometimes. Just write it down on a piece of paper. What do we know here? We do know that God is upset with Israel. That God allows Satan to test David's faith by taking a census. That Joab tries to talk David out of it. Here we go again with Joab. He's such an enigmatic character. He's up and he's down and he's down and he's way down and then he comes back up. Well, this is one of his up times. Joab's absolutely right about this. He's the spiritual one in this chapter until we get to Gad, the prophet. But even though Joab gives him some sound advice and tries to talk him out of it, David does it anyway. The number of the fighting men, and if you, if you were to look at a map, they kind of basically make a circle around all of Israel. That's what all those places were. It takes them quite a while to do it. But once they make this whole circle, the number of fighting men in Israel, adding the men to Judah, the men of Judah with the total count, comes out to 1.3 million men. That puts the population of Israel at around 6 million people at the time of the golden age of Israel, which was the reign of David, reigns of David and Solomon. Today, to put that in perspective, the population of Israel is about 8 million. Now, that would have been a, a lot of population back in, in that time. But the, the probability is that parts of Israel were very, very fertile. Now, they're becoming that way again because of irrigation. But at that time, Israel was much more forested than it is today, and there was a lot more serviceable land for agriculture than there is today. Another issue that I won't get into tonight, but the figures in First Chronicles are slightly different. There are many reasons for that, but that's beyond the scope of our discussion. But the idea is that would be a huge army. And it makes sense because it's very probable that Israel was one of the most powerful nations, if the not, if not the most powerful nation militarily at the time that David was king. And they had a great king to lead them if they needed to go into battle against someone. So for about a nanosecond, David probably felt extremely secure in, in that particular number. But then, in verses 10 through 17, now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. Another way of saying that is David's conscience got to him. David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him, to the Lord, who sent me. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel, from morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor 
of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let thy hand be against me and against my father's house. David's conscience convicted him that what he had done was sinful. In the same way, that the Holy Spirit uses our consciences to convict us when we've done something that is sinful. I want you to notice when David admits this sin, he says, I've sinned greatly. He, he talks about how foolishly he acted. The more mature you are in the Christian faith, the more likely to, you are to recognize just how much sin offends the holiness of God. His confession, I hope you'll notice, is anything but mechanical. It's very personal and extremely passionate. Listen to it one more time. It's worth hearing again. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. The less mature we are, Let's seriously take it. It's no big deal. Jesus died for it. No big deal. But David took it in a very personal and passionate way. The particular sin that David committed, taking a census of the people, at least on the surface, really doesn't seem to warrant the death of 70,000 people, at least on the surface. But remember this. David's older now. He's older in age. He's getting close to 70 years of age. It's right toward the end of his life. He's older in age. He's older in experience. He's older in maturity. And he's already gone through the whole 10 years worth of discipline for the Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite sin. You know, that we, we can come to a point in the Christian life where God looks down and he says, you know, he ought to know better. You know, she ought to know better than that. And the old... Latin proverb, to whom much is given, much is expected. That's a Latin proverb, but it's a biblical concept, too. The more we mature in the Christian faith, the more the Lord expects of us. He expects certain behavior from his mature ones. He doesn't expect perfection, as we see right here. David's as mature as he's probably ever going to be in his spiritual life. But yet he still sins at the end. And what seems like such a trivial thing to us, and I, I have to say, if David would have been 16 or 17 years old and done something like this, he probably, would, he probably wouldn't have caused the death of 70,000 people. But David is the leader of Israel. I would argue at that time he was the most powerful person in the world, not just because he was the leader of Israel, but because he is the child of God who's the leader of Israel, and he has God with him. So power had to go to David in terms of the most influential, the most powerful person in the world. And since he within that particular position. God expected certain behavior from him. God expects more from David. He expects better from David in the position that he's in and over with all the spiritual assets that he has. And I've got to tell you something. With all those spiritual assets that David had, as we sit here tonight, we actually have greater spiritual assets. So what does that say about what his expectations are of us? They're pretty serious. There are parts of the world that don't have an Old Testament in their Bible. There are parts of the world that don't have a Bible at all. 
there are parts of the world where the pastors that are teaching the people barely, barely know anything of the Word of God. But that's not us. To whom much is given, much is expected. And that's what's going on with David. So if you're like me and you see this passage and you say, taking a census and 70,000 people die, just numbering the people, seeing how many people are in the army, doesn't seem to come to the level of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Well, God's mind, David should have known better. Since he did it, knowing better, he was also counseled by someone you wouldn't have thought would have known better, Joab. If Joab could see that David should have known better, certainly David should have. To my knowledge, this is the only place in Scripture where someone was given the option to choose his own discipline. I can't think of any other place. If you can think of one, let me know. The choices that God gives David through this prophet are these. Seven years of famine in the land, which would be the ancient equivalent of a catastrophic economic meltdown. Seven years of famine in the land. Second, David fleeing from his enemies for three months. And that seems like such a mild option, but that would have been catastrophic as well. To have the king of Israel, the most powerful person on the planet, fleeing from his enemies, it means something something gone terribly wrong in Israel. And the third one was three days of pestilence. David, I believe, very wisely, turns the decision back to God. That was a brilliant move on David's part. And God sent the pestilence. God always sends the precise judgment or discipline that perfectly fits the sin. In one sense, we could say 70,000 Israelites died because of David's sin. But we also need to remember, we don't need to get so wrapped up in that detail, let's not forget the very first phrase of the chapter. Now, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Remember we said there had to be some unspecified sin that the people had engaged in. The people weren't innocent. Now, David, like a good shepherd, is going to want to take everything upon himself. But God's anger was burning against Israel in the first place. And I have to trust, like you have to trust, that God knew what he was doing in this particular district. I think, personally, that David expresses incredible leadership here, particularly in verse 17, when David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It's I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? David's got a shepherd heart all the way from the time he's a little kid to the time he leaves this earth. The shepherd's heart looks out for the care of his sheep first. And he was a great shepherd. But if David was a great shepherd, how much more Jesus Christ was the great shepherd. What David did to a small degree, Jesus did to a much, much more massive degree. And so David is saying, listen, don't impute this sin, if I could borrow that terminology just for this illustration, don't impute this sin to them. Give it to me. I'll take the sin. Of course, David was a fallen human being, so he couldn't have taken the sin of the whole world like Jesus Christ did. But boy, there are some interesting parallels between what David says here and what Jesus will say uh, and do about a thousand years later. So I think he exercises tremendous leadership here. One of the most overlooked aspects of leadership is humility. And I think David does have great humility. I don't see him as being a prideful person. 
So he says, let me have this family. Of course, some of his family members may have not have liked it too much because he said, let me and my family, you know, me and my house, we'll take the sin. God knows what he's doing with his church. I used to know, I haven't seen this person in a decade or so, but a Christian psychologist who had a radio program, and I believe she told me at the time that it was nationally syndicated. One day she was in my office, and I don't know how the discussion came up, but somehow the discussion came up on what I was teaching at that particular time. Probably just a courtesy throw in line. And I said, well, I'm teaching Study the Life of David. Now, this was the study we did a long time ago. This wasn't this particular one. And she immediately blurted out, I despise David. Immediately I retorted, really? I love the guy. I named my youngest son after him. Why would you despise him? Now, this was a particular woman who had written a book. She gave it to me. I read most of it. She had some very interesting ideas. She was one of those psychologists that promoted the idea, starting about 20 years ago, that, well, first of all, she hated men. She made that very clear to me. But she promoted the idea, and this is a, you know, it's a serious subject, so I'm certainly not making light of it at all, but that if a woman in her adult years even felt like she might have been abused by her father or a family member, even though there's no memory of it, and even though there's no evidence of it, if she felt like she might have been abused or even, and I'm using her terminology, would have even dreamed that she would have been abused, then she was abused. And the father should be gone after or the uncle should be gone after, whoever it may be. Now, I don't doubt that, that there are repressed memories. I'm not, I'm not doubting that. But I will say a lot of damage was done to a lot of families with that kind of thinking. But I got to get back to the idea of why she despised David. When she answered me, she said, because of this passage right here. She thought that David should have picked the second option and run from his enemies and spared the people all this grief. Of course, if that's all it would have been, David would have chosen that option because of what he says in verse 17. Let me take the consequences. When the king's running, he's not the only one that's going to take the consequences. It means the entire nation is in social upheaval and political upheaval, and the whole nation would have been at risk. None of these, either the seven years of famine the fleeing for three months, or the three days of pestilence, none of them were good options. And David knew it. And so that's why he said, Lord, you pick. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him, and Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be held back from the people. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered the burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by entreaty for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. 
Remember, the Lord was about to destroy Jerusalem as well and stop. Those of you that are familiar with the geography of the city of David and of Jerusalem will know that the area of the temple wasn't the first area that was occupied there. At the time, at 1000 B.C., the area where the temple is was a vast open area, apparently, owned by this man, Aruna. And this will be the place that the temple will be built in the future. This is how David came to own that land. But this is also the site, the very same site, where approximately 1,000 years before this, and let's round it off, around 2000 B.C., maybe 1800 B.C., Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. So Abraham went there to sacrifice Isaac. David bought it from Aruna to make a sacrifice to make sure this plague was ended. And then in the very next generation, Solomon's going to build the temple on this same spot. It's an incredibly historic spot. And we would call it today the Temple Mount. The story should sound somewhat familiar because the same thing happened to Abraham in Genesis 3.3. He had to make a sacrifice, and people wanted to give him everything to make the sacrifice. He says, no, 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 no. If it's not costing me anything, it's not a real sacrifice. And I love the way that David says it. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord. Very personal here. I won't offer, it's not that I won't offer burnt offerings to the Lord, which would have been fine, but he says, to my Lord. Everything in this chapter is enormously personal, which costs me nothing. I don't think David would have made a very good congressman or legislature in today's culture because most of them are pretty proficient at giving away OPM. You know what that stands for? Other people's money. They're real proficient at that. They tax you, and then with the tax money that they receive into the government, then they spend that on certain pet projects that earns them favor with certain sections of the electorate, and then they stay in office for a longer time. That's buying influence with OPM, with other people's Money. Not all congressmen and senators do that, of course, or legislate, state legislators, but far too many do it. So David's sacrifice and the plague was held back. It's in our best interest as the course of our life goes on, no matter what our age, to have our focus in life remain squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what quarter I'm in to use the football analogy. I don't know what quarter you're in, and age means nothing. And since we can never know exactly where we are on the clock, it's in our best interest to keep our eye not so much on the clock, but to keep our eye on the one who decides when that clock runs out for us. That's where our focus should be. We should never coast to end our life. Just like the, a football team should never coast, no matter what the lead is. I'm not saying they should pile on, but I'm saying you don't coast. You get hurt if you coast. And in the spiritual life, you get hurt if you coast. So we should keep our attention squarely focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what our age, and make an effort through the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry to finish well. Not because we might lose our salvation, because we may very well lose something at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is, is not something where we just look to get rewards. The greatest reward any of us will receive at the judgment seat of Christ 
is just a short phrase. Well done. My good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I love that because our Lord doesn't expect perfection out of us. And we don't have to be perfect in order to get a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. And you know, those people who get the well done, I don't think they care a little bit even about the cities that they're going to rule over. Their focus will be entirely upon the Lord who just said, well done. If resurrection bodies could get goosebumps, I think they'll have a goosebump from their resurrection toes all the way to their resurrection head. That my Lord, as David calls him here, that my Lord evaluated my life to be at least a little faithful. But to do that, we need to finish well. We're never too mature to fail. And we see in this chapter that as we progress in our spiritual lives, God holds us to an ever-increasing standard. No one gets so far down the road in their spiritual life that they're immune to failure.